Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. This morning we are going to be looking at Esther chapter 2 and the first 18 verses. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also, also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of the food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for, of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shahash. Shahashgaz, this king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. When the king gave a great then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes into the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. 
Back in 1973, two criminals robbed a large bank in the city of Stockholm, Sweden. These two criminals took four of the bank employees hostage during the robbery and locked them up in a bank vault and ended up keeping them in that vault for six days. A strange thing happened after the police were able to arrest the robbers and free the hostages. Those hostages were unwilling to testify against the robbers. And matter of fact, they even went out and raised money for the defense of the bank robbers. Well, a police psychiatrist sat down with these hostages trying to understand how they could have this kind of a affection for those who abused them and kept them captive. And in the midst of working through that, he coined a term which we now call the Stockholm Syndrome. It's that tendency at times of those who are being held captive to become identified with their captors, to, be, to fall in love or to become supportive of their captors. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. Probably the most famous example actually happened one year later when newspaper heiress Patty Hearst was abducted by a terrorist group, the Symbionese Liberation Army, and over time actually became sympathetic to the terrorist group and eventually participated in their crimes. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. If we lived 2,600 years ago in the Middle East, in the area of Mesopotamia, when the Persian Empire was there, and Esther and Mordecai lived, we might have called it the Susa Syndrome. That was a city where they dwelt. That was a city where they were being held captive, so to speak. Or were they? That's really going to be a question for our study this morning. It had been about 100 years since the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and taken the Jewish people away as captives, as exiles, to Babylon hundred years. That means that Esther and Mordecai, who we'll meet today, had been born and raised in captivity. They had been born and raised as exiles in Babylon first, and then when the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians under the Persian rule. When the captivity began, the Lord instructed his prophet Jeremiah to send a letter to those Jewish people, the people of God who had been taken away as captives, taken to Babylon, he instructed Jeremiah to write a letter to them to tell them how to live while they waited 70 years for God to intervene and bring them back to the promised land. This is what Jeremiah wrote in that letter according to God's instruction. It said, this is Jeremiah 29 beginning in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. A remarkable statement where God is telling his people, you're going to be there for a couple of generations. I want you to settle in. 
I want you to become part of that culture. And yet, I want you to remain distinct from it. I want you to live faithfully as exiles in a foreign culture where they don't know the name of Yahweh, where they don't understand the covenant, when they, where they reject their creator. That's what it was to live as an exile. They were to become part of the culture without adopting the religion of the culture, the values of the culture, or the sins of the culture as part of their lifestyle. And as they waited upon the Lord in their faithfulness, his promise was, I will come and deliver you. Well, here we are 100 years later. That means 70 years have come and gone. And God had intervened and through King Cyrus had issued a decree for the exiles to be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. And yet here we are 30 years after that and Esther and Mordecai, these two Jews that we meet in chapter two, they're still there. And we don't know why. The writer of the book doesn't tell us why and we can't know for sure. But it does raise the question of what does it mean to be faithful as an exile? Should they have been there? Maybe in God's eyes, there was a good reason for them to be there. And we will find out that in his providence, there eventually would be. But were they there for the right reasons? The book of Esther doesn't reveal inner thoughts and motivations. It's rather remarkable that way. It's kind of like just the facts, ma'am. It just, it just basically tells you the story, doesn't give you any internal insight into what was motivating the people in the story. We have to be careful not to attribute motivation or, in a sense, to add to God's word things that aren't clearly spelled out there. But as we look at the lives of Esther and Mordecai at the beginning of the story, where they are in chapter 2, it's hard to not see hints in the account that there was compromise going on in their soul. That they had somehow become enamored with their culture. That somehow they'd become comfortable in this pagan culture and adopted the mindset and the ways of the culture. There are some red flags in the story that point us in that direction. And we'll look at those this morning. Our circumstances here in the 21st century in America are very different from Esther and Mordecai's circumstances in ancient Persia. But the basic issues are still the same. They were exiles. Their citizenship was in heaven, just as our citizenship is in heaven. Their kingdom was under Yahweh, just as our kingdom is under Yahweh and his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They lived in a culture that was foreign to their religion, foreign to their philosophy, foreign to their worldview, foreign to their values, and foreign to their lifestyle. And we too, the New Testament teaches, live as exiles in similar cultures to one degree or another. Jesus, remember the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. He prayed for us in this way. This is what he said, beginning in verse 14. Speaking of us, his disciples, he says, I, he says to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, 
so I have sent them into the world. We are not of the world, we are of heaven. We are of God's kingdom. We belong to Christ, but we are sent into the world. We are not taken out of the world, we are sent into the world, and the challenge is to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ in a culture that pulls at us constantly away from him. And that's what we're gonna be looking at, not just today, but really in weeks to come as we look at the lives of Esther and Mordecai. When we read this story, chapter two, we have a tendency to read it. We've been raised on Disney movies, and so we tend to read it like a Cinderella story. You know, a poor, oppressed, unfortunate uh, woman without privileges. She somehow is interjected into the life of royalty, and she ends up marrying the prince or the king and living happily ever after. That's not this story. This is not a fairy tale, not a Disney movie. Matter of fact, if you read carefully, it's not a rags to riches story. It's not a romance at all. Instead, it's about abuse of power. It's about lust. It's about the objectification of women. It's about fornication. I read an article this week that tells me that because that word's not used from pulpits, that pastors should define it. Fornication is a word we don't hear about much anymore. Fornication is any sexual activity outside the boundaries of marital sexual relations between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. That's fornication. That's what this story's about. And it's about compromise. It's about depravity. And we're gonna see that as this story unfolds. Back in chapter one, just to remind you, in case you weren't here for chapter one, we saw that in a moment of anger, and drunken foolishness, the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, had irrevocably banned his wife from his presence, banished her. Queen Vashti refused to be paraded for her beauty in front of of all the king's lustful friends, and so he banished her. In chapter 2, verse 1, it begins by saying that he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Interesting, in Hebrew, that word remembered carries the connotation of affection. When it talks about God remembering his people, it has a connotation of affection when you remember somebody like that. And so you get the sense that King Ahasuerus kind of woke up from his drunken stupor and got over his hangover and said, what have I done? I've banished my beautiful wife. I can't have her in my presence anymore. What am I going to do? And And you get the sense that he was probably inconsolable about it, but instead of repenting of his sin, he listens to his young men. Don't don't ever listen to young men. When it comes to marriage advice, (laughs) how to treat the opposite sex, go to the older men. Don't go to the younger men. It says his younger advisors come to him, and they've hatched this plan. This is their plan. We're going to send out a decree to all the provinces of the kingdom to have the leaders of those provinces to gather together all of the most beautiful women they can find, have them delivered to the palace, and the king can try them all out and decide which one he wants for, the, for his queen. It's really a despicable story, despicable plan. It's a beauty contest, but unlike Cinderella, in order to win this contest, you'd have to do a lot more than just dress up in a fancy gown and dance. In verse 3, it says there were only three requirements for the women that were to be herded into the royal palace in Susa. 
They had to be beautiful, young, and virgins. Those were the qualifications. It doesn't say how many women were gathered, but we do know the time frame because it mentions that Queen Vashti was banished in the third year of the king's reign and the queen was chosen in the seventh year. So we know that the whole process took four years, which, you know, when it takes a year for them to get beautified, I guess that makes sense. It, it took four years for the whole process to be completed, but it gives, also gives you the sense this could have involved hundreds of young women. In some cases, I am sure, some of these women were abducted. They were forcibly taken from their lives, from their families, from their communities, from their friends, and forced into this twisted contest. But I'm also sure that many of these young women saw it as an opportunity, especially if they were down on their luck, if they were you know, in a hard circumstances in life, even the women that weren't chosen to be queen got to live in the royal palace, in the royal harem for the rest of their lives in luxury and, and comfort. So I'm sure some of the women jumped at the chance to be a part of this. In verses 5 through 7, we meet two of the exiles who become the focus of this entire book. Mordecai and his cousin Esther. They were first cousins. Esther was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle, so they were first cousins, but he also became Esther's adoptive father, and so he raised her. Once her parents died, she lost both her parents, so she was an orphan, so definitely fits that category of somebody at the lowest rung of society. She was an orphan, but Mordecai took her into his home and raised her as his own daughter. The account emphasizes Esther's beauty. It says it twice. When the scripture repeats something, it's trying to emphasize it. She was really beautiful. It says in the text that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And so she was a prime candidate for this contest. You also get the sense that she was very charming in personality. It says that she won the favor. The Haggai was, Haggai was the, the, the leader, the leader. Uh, the guy, the eunuch who oversaw the concubines in the palace. And it says that Esther won his favor. She became his favorite. And she gave him all kinds of, he gave her all kinds of advantages in this contest, as we'll see. But it says also in verse 16 that after the beautification process was over, it says, it says she was winning the favor in the, winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then finally, of course, it says that she won grace and favor in the king's sight. So there's something not only impressive with Esther's beauty in terms of physical appearance, but she also had strong social skills. You get that sense. People liked her. People loved her. She was charming. And I tell you, if God has gifted you with that, and these are gifts from God, if God has gifted you with attractive appearance, with, with good looks, beauty, and he's gifted you at the same time with charm and social skills so that people like you immediately, be careful. Those are wonderful gifts from God, but in this culture especially, it's so easy for Satan to tempt you to use them to build your pride instead of your humility and to use them to manipulate people instead of serving people. So all you beautiful people out there, all you warm and friendly likable, extroverted people, be careful with those gifts 
They're precious, they're valuable, and they can be used greatly, like any gift from God, to be used greatly for the kingdom of God. But Satan is going to be whispering in your ear all the time to use them for its selfish purposes. And I think that, to some degree, happened for Esther. These young women then went through 12 months of beauty treatments, and Haggai made sure that, as I said, that Esther got all the best of everything, and she got the best place in the harem. And when it came time for Esther's turn to go in to spend the night with the king, Haggai made sure that she took with her from the harem. All the women were allowed to take with them whatever they wanted from the harem to try to impress the king. And probably we're talking about things like jewelry and clothes and maybe food. So that Haggai knew what the king's preferences were. He knew what would win the king's heart. And so he gave that inside information to Esther because he liked her. And so she had all the advantages going into her opportunity to win the contest. And lo and behold, she wins the king's affections and is crowned the queen of Persia. This poor Jewish orphan is now the queen of Persia. This is no light romance story. It's full of offensive, ugly, sinful actions. But the providence of God is working here. We're going to see as we continue to read and study through these chapters that God is about to do some great work of intervention through the life of Esther to deliver his people and to glorify his name. You know, providence, though, can only be seen in hindsight. And I guarantee you that Esther had no idea what God was doing. Esther had no idea of how God was going to use this in spite of all the sinfulness involved in putting her where she is, that God was still going to overrule all this for his good, for his glory, and for our good. And so while we wait on the Lord then, you know, we can only see providence in hindsight. You know, it's very difficult to see providence working in your current circumstances. It's even more difficult to see providence where providence is going, what providence is going to do in the future. And we said last week, that's what it means to live by faith. To say, I know God is in this situation. I know God is sovereignly in control of all the circumstances that I'm in. But so much of the time, I have no idea what he's doing. But I trust his heart. I trust his goodness. I trust his faithfulness. And so I'm going to live a life that reflects that trust and faith. What I'm asking you to consider this morning is that Esther was not there yet. She was not there yet in her discipleship. How can we be in the world but not of the world? How can we be true to our Lord while fully engaged, interacting with the culture around us? The first thing that this chapter teaches us is we must understand what true separation from the world is. We are called upon to be separate from the world. But this church has struggled through all its generations to understand exactly what that means and how you live your life day in and day out. The writer of Esther doesn't give us any insight into her motives. And so again, I want to be careful not to, to plant a, an idea of what her motivations may have been that, that um, is not faithful to Scripture. But I do think that intentionally this passage gives us some hints about what was going on in her discipleship as an exile. It says in verse 9, for instance, that she, that of course, like all the contestants in this sordid uh, contest, 
she was given all this beauty treatment, but she also was given all the best food of the king. She ate the food of the palace, which would mean for a faithful Jewish exile violating the dietary laws that God had given to his people. Those dietary laws, we call them ceremonial laws because they don't still apply, but they did apply to the Old Testament people of God as a sign of their separation from the world. That's what those dietary laws were about. It was a sign to them of their separation from the world. And she participated in all the feasting of the palace. In verse 10, it says that Mordecai told her to hide her identity as a Jewish exile. And she did. She didn't let anybody know that she belonged to Yahweh, that she was part of the covenant people of God. She didn't want to be identified as a follower of the one true God. And then in verses 9, I mentioned it already, in verses 9 and verse 15, verse 17, it talks about her gaining favor in the eyes of the people of the palace all the way up to the king. But what's interesting is that usually when it talks about people um, you know, the people of God having favor in the eyes of the culture around them or the people around them, it talks about, it says God gave them favor in the eyes of these people or in the eyes of the, of the culture. In this case, it says she won the favor. She won the favor of the people she interacted with, which speaks of action on her part, which again, I think is where I, I get this idea that she must have been very charming, very attractive in personality as well as in, in looks. And so, if she is working to gain the favor, while she's in a position of being on a track towards committing fornication and marrying a Gentile, pagan king, this makes you wonder where her heart was. Had she become a compromised exile? Compare her to the earlier exiles we know from the Babylonian captivity, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They refused to eat the king's food, no matter what the cost. They refused to change their public prayer habits, no matter what the cost. They refused to bow to the idol that the king constructed, no matter what the cost. And it led to them being in fiery furnaces and lion's dens. One commentator said in writing about this part of the passage said, if someone's willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. If someone's willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. So don't look at Esther's story here and say, well, she was coerced. She was trapped in this situation. She's a victim. So certainly she was to some degree. But the option of obedience to the Lord was always there if she was willing to pay the cost. And it might have been her life. We don't know. What we're going to see is that Esther is a work of grace and progress. She will, as we follow the story, as we follow the historical account, we are going to see that she will increasingly have to choose between her luxurious, comfortable Persian status and lifestyle and loyalty to Yahweh and Yahweh's people. And yes, it will come to a point of life or death decision for her. 
But at this point, as we first meet her in the story, you get the very strong sense that she is in great spiritual danger, in danger of being absorbed into the Persian culture, into the palace culture, being lured by the temptation of luxury and power and the approval of men. As we read earlier, God calls his people to separate from the world. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is, that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. So obviously separation doesn't mean physically removing ourselves, but it means being faithful to our God, being obedient to our God, even while we are fully engaged with the culture around us. And that's the difficult mission that God has called each one of us to. To engage with the culture, to be salt and light in the midst of deception and darkness, to love others, to love even our enemies in every possible way, all the while refusing to adopt the worldview of the culture around us, refusing to adopt the values of the world around us, and refusing to adopt the ways of life of the world around us, those ways of darkness and depravity. We're going to continue to talk about what separation looks like. It's a difficult issue. We've been talking about it in our adult Sunday school class when it comes to arts and entertainment. It's no easy answers. But obedience to God's will is always an option if we're willing to pay the cost. Secondly, we learn here that we must have a strong sense of our identity in Christ. I say that because it seems like Esther and Mordecai started to lose a sense of who they were as they lived day by day in this foreign culture. Verse 5 says that, you know, it talks about this strong Jewish heritage. It, you know, it's not uncommon for Scripture to talk about the, the uh, believers being the son of this and son of this person and son of that person. That's very common. But in this context, it does seem to be making the point about Mordecai's heritage. And it emphasizes the point that he was a son of Kish. In other words, Kish was one of his ancestors, and Kish was the father of King Saul of Israel. He had a significant Jewish heritage. But in verse 6, it goes even further, and it talks about his family being carried away by the Babylonians. His family was carried away. But do you notice it's kind of an awkward verse because it says, uses that word three times very quickly. Carried away, carried away, carried away. It's the word, you could use the word exiled. Exiled, exiled, exiled. It's like it's underlining that message that... Mordecai came from a family of exiles, people who were carried away. And that identity of being a Jewish exile was to be important to him as it was to be for Esther. And this is the identity that he told Esther to hide while she was at the palace. This is the identity, we'll find out that in chapter 3, Mordecai didn't reveal his Jewish identity until chapter 3. So he'd been hiding it to this point as well. 
you look at the names, Esther is a Persian name, and, and most commentators think that it's related to the Persian or Mesopotamian god of Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, uh, kind of their version of Venus, the, 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 the god of the Greek and Romans. And so it was a pagan name. And then Mordecai actually means uh, a man of Marduk, which was a, a Babylonian god. And so their names aren't Hebrew names. They're not covenant names. They're the names of their culture, of that Persian culture. Um, and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not Hebrew names either. They were names given to them by the Babylonians. Um, you know, and it's not at all uncommon for people in, the, in Scripture to have two names, uh, Paul and Saul or Peter, Simon and Peter. It's not that they had two names. It's not even that one of the names was given by the culture in which they lived in. That wasn't the problem. I think that, again, it, by emphasizing that in this context, it, you almost get the sense that this identity crisis is going on for Esther. Am I a person of Yahweh or am I a person of my culture? We live in a culture where identity is a hot topic. People arguing about identity all around us. And one of the cultural principles that's being established is that identity, first of all, is to be determined by each individual. You decide what your identity is, and nobody can tell you any different. And secondly, your identity is fluid. It can change according to your whims and desires, or more likely, the whims and desires of the culture around you. But identity is not fluid. Identity is determined by your creator. Identity is determined by your redeemer. That's something that cannot change. When you think that your identity is fluid, then according to the words of Ephesians 4, it can be tossed to and fro by every wind and doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We base our identity in the covenant of grace that God has established with his people. You see, God has sent his son to be the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And we have taken the name of our bridegroom. Our identity is in him. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He is my identity. That doesn't mean you lose yourself. It means you become what you were intended to be. You lose the old self, the old man, the identity of the world, the world has conformed you into. You set that identity aside and you find your true identity in Christ. Union with Christ is one of the most important New Testament theological concepts. In Christ, which that's Paul's favorite phrase. He says it more than anything else in his writings in the New Testament. In Christ. It's his way of talking about union with Christ. You belong to Christ. You are one with him. The more you understand that identity, the more you embrace that identity, the more important that identity becomes to you, the easier it is to say, I'm not going to act like the world. I'm not going to accept those identities that the world is trying to force upon me. I know who I am. I am Christ's, and he is mine. We are not defined by our looks. We are not defined by our charm. We are not defined by our good works. We are not defined by our worldly status. We are defined by what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we have died with Christ, and we've been raised to new life in him. We are new creatures in Christ. And so when our culture rejects 
the Christ in us, we must stand firm in who we are. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 9, verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. An identifying fruit of those who truly believe in Christ, those who are truly born again, the way you know them, is that ultimately they stand for Christ when the world challenges that identity. The third thing we learn is that none of this is motivated by legalism. This is all motivated by our love for Christ. Because and that's, that's the danger. We talked about how in every generation of the church there's been this struggle with what does it mean to be separate? And we get into all these arguments about what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean to, to lie? What does it mean to what music you listen to? What uh, job you take? And we get into all these legalisms about what it means to be separate from the world. But at the very core, it's about being true to the bridegroom, the lover of your soul. It's about being in this relationship with him. Separating from sin and identifying with Christ and the covenant of grace must be motivated by thankfulness for the grace that he has shown to us, the way that he has loved us, not some legalistic effort. You see, I think there's a reason why people tend to throw the story of Esther into the same category as Cinderella and all those other type of fairy tales is because we want Esther. And maybe if you've never really studied Esther, maybe you're, you're kind of disappointed for the picture portrayed of her today that I think is more true to scripture. Because we want to read her story and be inspired by her example, don't we? We want her to be a heroine. We want her to be like, you know, Captain Marvel. We want her to be somebody who's, who's strong and powerful and we, she can inspire us to follow her example. But instead, what we meet in her is a weak, broken sinner who compromises. When I was working for, I used, when I was going through seminary in Pittsburgh, I, uh, the job that I had for much of that time was working in a very large Christian bookstore. And I was always very happy to sell the theologically sound and helpful practical Christian books and things that we would sell in the bookstore. But there was a lot of other stuff that we had to sell. As a matter of fact, our store made most of its profit off, to, off of what one of my uh, coworkers called Jesus junk, uh, which is all that kitschy artwork and, you know, and, and toys and stuff. And, and um, I remember one of the saddest days I had in that job was when a new product line came out. And it was back when action figures were first the big thing for kids. And they came out with the heroes of the Bible action figures for Christian parents to buy for their children. And it was funny because like even guys like Noah, you know, he all bulked up, you know. He had the big shoulders and the big puffed out chest and the big biceps, you know. The hero of the faith. And I looked at it and said, you guys missed the point entirely. If there's anything that's clear as you study the people that are recorded in the history of the scriptures is they were not heroes and heroines. They were messed up people. They were murderers. They were adulterers. They were compromisers. And that's to be encouraging to us because so are we. We are all compromisers right along with Esther. Every day you live your life as a disciple in this world, you are compromising with your culture. You have cultural blind spots in your life where you're sinning and you don't even realize it so you're, because you're so steeped in your culture. But Jesus Christ was sent by our loving Heavenly Father 
to die for compromisers. Jesus Christ came and lived a life without any hint of compromise. And then he died for compromisers like you and me. He took the wrath and anger of God against our compromise and took it upon himself and died in our place and then was raised from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice in our place. So when we work hard to be separate from the world, we're not doing it to earn God's favor. We're doing it because of what Christ did for us. Because we love him now. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's the bridegroom for the church. That's what motivates our separation. And once you understand that and you, and you realize that in light of your identity in Christ, all the legalism just dissipates. I want to read a quote for you. I, I pulled this out of one of the commentaries I read this week. I just thought it summarized the whole message well. Listen to what he says. He says, Yet the glorious news of the gospel is that God is able to gather up all our moral failures and still use them for something redemptive and glorious in the end. The cross itself says so. It tells us that there is nothing that is unredeemable. God is able to take our failures and incorporate them into his larger redemptive purposes. That doesn't make what we've done right. And it doesn't mean that, that there aren't high prices to pay for what we have done. And it certainly doesn't mean, as Paul's opponents suggested, that we should sin all the more, that grace may abound. The answer to that is, and always has been, heaven forbid. But it also doesn't mean that our failures are unredeemable. In the words of a Portuguese proverb, God writes straight, but with crooked lines. The remarkable, even scandalous, scandalous truth is that God's providence is strong enough and his grace is big enough to take the crooked lines of our moral compromises and write straight his larger redemptive story. Thus, there is hope for us, just as there was for Esther. Esther is an example for us, yes, but she's an example of a compromiser saved by grace and then how God met her in her place of rebellion and then used her for his glory and her good. We're going to see that Esther ends up being able to make a powerful choice for the kingdom of God. But we begin by meeting her as someone a lot like us. Our study of Esther is going to be an opportunity for you to assess your life, yes. To look, hopefully, and look a little deeper than you tend to look and say, where am I compromising? Where am I living by the world's standards and the, living for the world's approval when I should be living for Christ? But it's also going to be, hopefully, not something to make you walk away feeling beat up and feeling guilty, but rejoicing that you're redeemed because of what Christ has done for you. This is a celebration of the gospel. And our separation from the world is only, not only is it only effective, but it's only effective as a witness when we do it because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. I'm sure as all of us have been reading this text and listening to the explanation of it, there have been small and big examples of compromise in our lives. Lord, let this be a place where you meet us in confession and repentance. Lord, may this be a place where your Holy Spirit not only shows us our sin, but shows us our crucified Savior who has delivered us from the penalty of that sin.
And Lord, out of love and adoration for him, may we begin to be transformed by your grace to separate from the values, the worldview, the lifestyle of the unregenerate world around us, all to your glory and definitely for our good. We pray in Christ's name, amen.